Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study here in Collegedale, Tennessee. Uh, my name is Lori Atkins. I'm filling in today for Dr. Tim Jennings. I also want to mention our Power of Love training and equipping course that's coming up soon in January, January 17 through 19, 2020, uh, just outside of Dallas, Texas. I want to encourage you to go to our website, get more information uh, about the itinerary and the workshops and the material that's going to be covered. It's going to be great. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing lots of folks there. I checked with Francesca yesterday. She gave me updated numbers. And right now we have 214 folks registered to attend from all around the globe. And I also just want to let you know that the $89 early bird discount it's in effect right now, ends on November 15, and after that, the price will go up to $129 for the seminar, which is still a huge bargain. But if you're thinking about attending uh, or coming to the event, go get your registration in now and save a little money. Okay, let's open class with prayer this morning. Father, we want to invite you in to our hearts, into this room, into our study. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be here and will... Uh, just envelop us in truth and love and enlighten our minds is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week we're starting a new quarterly. Uh, fourth quarter of this year, we're going to be studying the books of the prophets Ezra and Nehemiah. And this first lesson, lesson one, is entitled Making Sense of History, Zerubbabel and Ezra. Full disclosure, I have had to brush up on my minor prophet's knowledge this week, for sure. And I still have a long way to go, so hopefully we have some, some Old Testament scholars and experts here in class today to help us dig in to Zerubbabel and Ezra. And we're talking about the Israelites' return from Babylonian captivity and the process they went through of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. We're also going to spend a bunch of time today in the book, Prophets and Kings, this book discusses all of the events that we're talking about in detail and offers what I found to be some remarkable and noteworthy insights. And I'm talking about starting maybe chapter 45-ish and then continuing on through about chapter 50. If we have any folks watching who have to teach this lesson in two weeks, which I know we do, I highly recommend studying those chapters in Prophets and Kings. I also have a bunch of these quotes uh, at the end of my notes that will be online. And if I end up without enough material or y'all don't participate enough, then we'll probably just end up reading those <laughs> during class because <laughs> they're so profound. So I looked at the quarterly's introduction, and it says this about the two subjects of our study. Ezra and Nehemiah were exceptional, God-centered, word-oriented, and spirit-led leaders who deeply desired that God's people prosper and that his name be uplifted and proclaimed worldwide. Their lives modeled what God can do through dedicated, faithful servant leaders. And I said, wow, doesn't that sound like an incredible legacy? And who here would not want that to be said about them? It also says life's discouragements are opportunities for change. 
Disappointments may help us focus on essentials and accelerate our spiritual growth as we obtain victory in each crisis through God's empowerment. Ezra correctly understood that the only power to change comes through diligently searching, comprehending, and internalizing the scriptures. Why is that the only way we get the power to change? Because it gives us new thoughts. The Bible says the scriptures active, living, shining, yes. two-edged sword. And I think of scalpel, you know. Mm-hmm. And by thinking the words and allowing God to communicate to you through them, you enabled him to come in and reconstruct or, or uh, fix your brain. Yes, and we, we have a law. What do we call that law? Beholding. By beholding, we become changed. And in this case, this the word, diligently searching, comprehending, and internalizing the scriptures, spending time with God, this is how we worship. This is how we learn what he is like. This is how we observe the example of the Father that Christ gave us in his life, death, and resurrection. And by worshiping him, by admiring him, by spending time with him, by beholding him, we become like him. It is the only way we get the power to change. And from a personal testimony standpoint, I've read the Bible, you know, I just read it through. Repeatedly. (laughs) And every time it communicates to me differently. And in every situation. You know, once you've seen it, you've read it, you know it. It's not that way. It really is a communication form right. between you and God. Not, and not just the whole Bible. I mean, even specific texts at different times of life, different circumstances, different situations. It speaks to you in a very unique way. Yes. I feel like in my study this past week, even, you know, when I've had questions, you know, what is truth? Mm-hmm. It's like because of the study I have in the Word. He answers me yes. through the text, the promises that I've been reading. And it's a form of communication. Absolutely. He talks to me through his word. And I've just realized that this past week. Like, wow, how did you do that? Right, right. And, I mean, we're told to, to memorize it, to hide it in our hearts, to hold it in our hearts. Have you ever been in a situation, either didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do, and had texts come to your mind that you had memorized that were just the right thing in that moment. And if, if you're like me, I went to, I attended Forest Lake Church, Derek Morris and his wife were there, and they have a ministry of setting scripture to music. Because if you're like me, I can learn the lyrics to a song involuntarily, like by just writing in the elevator I know the words to a song. Memorizing scripture is very difficult for me. But if you set it to music, I got it. So anyway, there's, there's some techniques to that. Russell, you had a comment. I guess I'm, I'm not in complete agreement with the statement from the lesson. Because if Ezra and Nehemiah had access to scripture, it was only Old Testament yes. up to that time, which is more than likely writings of Moses, mm-hmm. and their knowledge of, of the, uh, the Levitical and, yes. and Ten Commandment laws given. So I think that they, they drew their, their knowledge of God from observing nature, mm-hmm. which is agree with included that. in the New Testament scripture for us. They didn't know the man Jesus, the being Jesus, 
Yeah. They listen to the they listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and they observe what was nature, and they drew on their own experience of how reality works, which is our evidence based uh, integration of truth that we've that Venn diagram that uh, Tim has come up with. Yeah. So I I guess I would I would disagree that that only reading scripture is the only way to agree character. No, I would knowing the God of Scripture yes. is the only way to transform character. So broadening that to worshiping yes. God and His character of love, however we find that, because it's said it's revealed in everything that He has made. There's evidence, so men are without excuse. So, however, we're able to do that, and like you said, obviously we've got Noah, we've got Enoch, we've got people prior to Scripture who were very intimate with God. In the Old Testament. That God of the Old Testament is the being that we know as Jesus. Right. Is the same being, except we didn't, he wasn't in human body yet. Yes. And so they did get to know God himself. He showed, he talked to them. He, mm-hmm. you know, gave them visions. He, he actually interacted with them more directly yes. than maybe he even does today. Right. I, I agree. We also know that there will be people in heaven that have never heard of God. Right. And they've never had scripture yes. to learn from. So how do they know? And it's got to be by other means. Has to be. What we're talking about so far. Yes. Well, the Bible says the other means they know is through nature. Mm-hmm. Through the things that were created, they observe the changes, the, the, how the interactions go, and how amazing that is. They can, they can begin to know how amazing the creator of them is. Well, I also yes. think that God maybe works with them in a different way, including nature, but, but with other means. To meet them where they're at, yeah, yes. Exactly. And the Holy Spirit, I think the Holy Spirit impresses and speaks to, we're told, he, he, they speak to heathens. You, you see these heathen, pagan towns that come out to protect a missionary, and they have no knowledge of Scripture or Christianity or anything like that, but their hearts are, are being moved by the Spirit. Yeah. I watched a show one time called Living with the Come-By. A couple of British guys came and, and lived with this people way out in, in New Guinea or someplace. Mm-hmm. And there was other shows where, <clears throat> you know, they exhibited such hospitality. One of those tribes that was way back in there was actually doing circumcision. Oh, wow. Uh, they, were, they had women in a different uh-huh. area when they were on their period and stuff like yeah. that. They had a lot of the traditions that we would not ever think that they would normally mm-hmm. have, but somehow through their tradition, some of the stuff made it through. Other comments? It talks about the key theological themes of these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, are God's providence, his faithfulness, and his covenant. God fulfilled his promises even though his people were narrow-minded, disoriented, distracted, and stubborn. Thank goodness. He does. Through his servants, he called them from their state of lethargy to revival and reformation. The work of restoration and reform carried on by the returned exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah presents a picture of a work of spiritual restoration that is to be wrought in the closing days of this earth's history. The remnant of Israel were a feeble people exposed to the ravages of their enemies, but through them, God purposed to preserve in the earth a knowledge of himself and of his law. 
They were the guardians of the true worship and the keepers of the holy oracles. I don't think she's talking about the dishes in the temple. It was way more than that. So the introduction also rightly points out that several parts of these two Old Testament books are written thematically rather than chronologically. So it's sometimes confusing, and it's not just these two books. It falls into Haggai and Zechariah, and several of these books are talking about the same events, not necessarily in chronological order. So I wanted to go through just real quickly a simplified kind of structure of the events that take place in both Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra... First thing that happens, as prophesied, King Cyrus uh, puts forth a decree that leads to basically return number one from Babylon, from Babylon to Jerusalem. And this is was in 537, 536 BC. Zerubbabel and Joshua were appointed by King Cyrus. Zerubbabel was to be governor-like, and Joshua was to be the high priest. Um, And at God's leading, those two brought back this first group of exiles back to Judah. And they also uh, rebuilt the temple there in Jerusalem. And that took place over the reign of several foreign kings. So even after Cyrus, they were still working on the rebuilding. And we'll talk about why that was such a project. Then there was a second return of exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem, and that followed a decree from Artaxerxes in about 457 BC, and that's when Ezra led another group back to Judah. That was the second group of exiles. And then Ezra, in the latter part of the book, instituted several reforms as they were rebuilding their government and their nation. Okay, then we move into Nehemiah. There were letters of endorsement from King Artaxerxes that led to the third return, the third group of exiles coming back in around 444 B.C. And this is when Nehemiah, at God's leading, brought back the third group of Israelites. They rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, and uh, a study of God's word as well as revival and reformation took place in Israel. They also enumerated, I guess took a census of all the returnees, and they dedicated themselves to God, the study of his scripture, and to doing his will. They celebrated the dedication of the new wall, and they regained national autonomy as the nation of Israel. And then at the end of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah also instituted some final reforms. So hopefully that brief outline gives us kind of a framework to look at the the historical events and avoid some confusion. Um, Now, as the title of this week's lesson suggests, or asks us, how do we make sense of history, of this history, this story of the Israelites falling into Babylonian captivity and their subsequent return and revival? How many of you have heard the the quote, those who cannot remember the past or learn from history are what? Destined, doomed, some say condemned to repeat it. What does that mean? Does that mean we should have paid more attention in high school history class? Should have done better on our tests? Is that what it means? What does it mean? What about for these Israelites? What was their history? How did they get here? And what should they be learning from it? 
How did they get where they were in Babylon? They released the God that brought them there and took on, took on other gods. Or in some cases, they tried to do both. Yes. So you mentioned taking on other gods. They were deep in idol worship, pagan practices, including human sacrifice, fertility cults. They were intermarrying with pagan heathen neighbors, which they were instructed not to do. God accused them of what? Adultery. Betrayal of a covenant, of a marriage. Did you know he divorced them? They also fell into what is commonly known as apostasy. Does anybody know what apostasy means? And is it always bad? The definition I found was the abandonment or renunciation of religious or political belief. Is that always a bad thing? Have we abandoned some of our religious beliefs since being in this class? I have. Right. Depends on what you what you abandon. Yes. False teachings. Right. Abandon those. They they abandoned that intimate connection with the one true God that he was trying to maintain with them. Let me go down to the... uh... And what happened? What was God doing while they were moving further into paganism and away from him? What was he doing? Well, he was warning them all the time with various prophets and things and, you know, trying to discipline them Mm -hmm. and trying to point out how, how fruitless that... What they're doing, it was one text that said, you know, what are you thinking? <laughs> My paraphrase, what are you thinking? You bring home wood, you cut it in half, you, you, you burn one of them to cook your food under, and you make a guy out of the other one. Right. It's like, it's, it's faulty thinking. What kind of reasoning powers are you using here? Yeah. So you, you had a, a, several in my list. I said he was wooing, warning, reproving, disciplining. Thundering, threatening. Wasn't he doing all these things to try to get their attention? Reasoning, come. (laughs) And I have Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. He sent many prophets and envoys to try to reach them. Yes, Russell. There's something along my quote that suggests that the the, the big picture of his, God's pattern of of, um, education, if you will, is blessings given, blessings removed. Um, discipline given and Mm -hmm. then letting go. Discipline removed. Yeah. And that's ultimately what he did. Yes, Wendell. Is it any different than what he does for any of his children? No. That's why we're supposed to be learning from history and making sense of history. Yes, it's exactly what he does with any one of us. So yeah, eventually he divorced them. Did he punish them? Or did he remove his hand of protection and let come about what he had been warning the whole time? There's a verse that says, you know, I'm going to let you see what the rulership of somebody else is like so you can compare the rulership theirs with mine. 
Yes. And hopefully come to, I'm adding, and hopefully. Yes, the side-by-side comparison will hopefully open your eyes. Doesn't always, does it? So I want to talk also about, there's kind of a mindset. When we talk about apostasy and about watching the, the decline of the children of Israel, there's a, a common thought process that it is a movement away, their movement away from the rigid Levitical rules, the Ten Commandment law, and things like that that led them into apostasy. So many times it's associated with a more relaxed or liberal or less conservative structure, uh, rigid religious structure, practices, beliefs. But again, we're supposed to be learning from history, so I want to look at whether that's actually true. Were the Jews in Old Testament given a rigid set of guidelines to abide by? One of the most rigid I've ever seen. And what happened to them? Did they suffer with apostasy? What about in the days of Christ? Were the Jews in Christ's day abiding by a rather rigid set of rules, burdensome rules? What happened to them? Did it result in apostasy for them as they crucified Christ? What about the apostolic church? What about this, the church that the apostles began? Did they have a rigid set of rules and doctrines? Or was there great love and acceptance of a wide variety of theologies and practices? In fact, not, they, only, they not only took what was originally given, but they expounded on it. Mm-hmm. With so many more rigid, and just the way they interpreted it, oh, more and more and more, they had so many rules that in Jesus' time, he said, you know, you make rules... Don't, you know, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Yeah. They make rules that they don't even follow. Right. Because they, they, they were allowed to interpret the scriptures, so they decided that meant... What it meant. ...make up scriptures. And to this day, they value those <laughs> more than the scripture itself. But the church that the apostles began, the way, was basically the opposite of that. And I think was ridiculed for that, because they were so open and accepting. As we move through history, what about during the Dark Ages? It seems that the apostles during the apostolic time, there was more controversy of the rules, though, you know, circumcision. Oh, you know. as, but what did they figure out as they were trying to grow the church and envelop in all of these other faiths? Didn't they decide on a very few set of rules? Yikes. Meat offered to idols? Life. Sexual sin? I mean, there was like oh, two or three, and the rest they said, you know what? Use your best judgment. It would seem that there's more than that built in. They didn't abandon the Sabbath. They didn't abandon True. Other things. And so there's many rules which were understood that maybe weren't spelled out. Sure. But, but that, yeah, that weren't being challenged. Right. Well, if we think back about Ezra, they didn't even know what the rules were. Right. And the same thing in the time of Josiah. I mean, the people didn't even know. They, yeah. they paid so little attention to it. Yeah. Well, and they, it had, uh, the gene pool had been watered down, let's go, by design. And, they, and what they did understand, they misinterpreted. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> they start focus on the rules and not the meaning. Yes, the symbols well, and not what it pointed to. We were good. And Abraham's children did the rules, I mean, like Flint. Mm-hmm. What about during the Dark Ages? Any rigid rules being practiced there? 
Any apostasy? Yes. Yes. For the better. <laughs> Some of the worst. And then, so I have in the notes, we'll move past it, just the, the progression of how did this apostolic church, the way, this open, accepting Christian church, transition to the church that we saw with all the abuses that we saw in the Dark Ages. And, of course, it involves the, the conversion of Constantine and what happened after that. Um, and how distorted eyes of God came to be viewed through the, through the lens of paganism. And it infected the Christian church. Which Constantine? Because it's believed that Constantine that led to the acceptance of Sunday as a universal day mm-hmm. was fairly pagan and wasn't even baptized until he was on his deathbed. This is in the 4th century. I don't know yes, that's the guy. which Constantine. So basically he converted... And when I say converted, I mean he woke up one day and said, we're no longer Catholic, we're Christian. Or we're no longer Roman, we're Christian. But all of the practices, all of the ceremonies stayed the same. They just now had a Christian label on them. The problem he had was he had varied groups under him, and he wanted to unify them. And we have a theme today that sort of sounds like that as well. Unify them all, and how do you do that? Well, they worship, pagans worship on Sunday, yes. sun god, the son of God, okay, we'll make worship on Sunday, mm-hmm. and you can all be on the same day, et cetera, et cetera, Monday, moon god, you know, I mean, they, even our names that exist are based on planetary things, yep. and uh, gods, and so on, and so his his was an effort to try to, you know, get everybody on the, on the same... Yes, and that effort apparently took place at the Council of Nasia. The council did not occur at a religious organization. And you know why? Because up to this point in church history, there were no church buildings. If you remember, they were meeting in small groups. They were meeting in people's homes. So this council occurred at Constantine's palace, and he took the opportunity to seduce church leaders with the grandness and opulence. And a huge list of problems began. These distorted ideas of God as the God of paganism is the view that Christianity started viewing him through. And the church then began to model itself structurally after Rome with an authoritarian head, thus misrepresenting God's character as an authoritarian in nature. They developed creeds as tests of fellowship. Orthodoxy of thought began, and thought police were established, thus misrepresenting God as dictatorial, petty, and arbitrary. Church buildings began to be built to model after Rome. Have you ever been in some of the cathedrals and churches in Europe and uh, ancient times? They were designed to undermine or shut down thinking just by their grandiosity and their... Have you ever walked in one and just been jaw-dropping awe? specifically to to overwhelm you. Then a division between royalty and commoners, which was part of the royal Roman culture, entered into the church as they divided clergy and laity. This undermined the concept of the priesthood of believers. The church building elevated clergy, modeled after the emperor of Rome on an elevated platform, an elevated seat and pulpit, all designed to communication or to communicate a separation of rank and instill a top-down authoritarian idea regarding church and God. 
The church authority became more rigid, establishing rules, requirements for behavior, and tests of fellowship. Membership in the church became the new political party, and only those in right standing with the church could wield political power or even be crowned king. Then, once these practices became entrenched over hundreds of years, they just became accepted as holy and orthodox. Text in Mark says, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Do we still struggle with such problems today? Has the Reformation really freed us from all of this infection and these distorted ideas about God and the way he runs his universe? Which direction do we see our own church denomination moving in today? Authoritarian. Yes. Markedly. Don't forget what we're talking about here. We're talking about learning from history or being destined to repeat it. I'm calling this Sunday's lesson, but we're following the daily breakdown very loosely today. So it's really probably more a combination of Sunday and Monday's lesson that discusses the the first group of exiles returning. This was the largest group. This was the group led by Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua. And they are coming back to Jerusalem after 70 years in captivity in Babylon. So, as you know, this release or return was prophesied many years before it actually happened. And Cyrus was mentioned in the prophecy by name. So not only does he, as in fulfilling prophecy, he allows and encourages them to go, but he also makes sure that they return with gifts and offerings. They, they came back loaded, and they also were given the original treasured vessels from the original temple that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen when they were, uh, when they were conquered. But he didn't stop there. He appointed Zerubbabel and Joshua as governor and high priest to lead them home, and he also instructed them to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Well, obviously this first group was super excited about that, about finally being back home and pretty much at once set themselves to the task of rebuilding the temple. They were prepping materials. They were getting everything staged. They were making plans. But they had some close neighbors made up of mixed-race Samaritans who claimed to worship the true God, and they offered to help. They said, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. But in their hearts and practices, they were idolaters, prone to reverence graven images. But the Israelite leaders refused them the privilege of working with them. Zerubbabel and his associates were familiar with God and Moses' instruction that they make no covenant with the heathens. They were not to show them any mercy or intermarry with them. Yes. And for those who aren't as familiar with the Samaritans, when the, when the Israelites were taken out of Samaria, they put in other people. But yes. Apparently when they took over people, they'd move them to some unknown place, and so they didn't, weren't familiar with anything. Well, they did, when they took people away from the Samaritan area, Samaria, they brought other people. Yes. Those people complained because they said, we, you know, lions are attacking us. Apparently have lions attacking him. We don't know what the God of this area wants, you know. <laughs> How to appease him. So they agreed, the king agreed to send back a priest who had been in Samaria to teach them the rules of this God so the lion would stop attacking them. (laughs) And unfortunately, he was a blended person as well. So they, each one, would worship God and whatever original God they came from. It lists 
several details of the different gods these yes. different people were worshiping. And so, and even in Jesus' time, you know, that's why they looked down on the Samaritans so much because they were an amalgam of mm-hmm. everything over there. You know? Yes. But it's also why the woman at the well, you know, said, understood there was a Messiah to come and, right. you know, understood some of the basic things, you know, because. Uh, they had already been instructed, and they had this mix, but they had some truth in the mix. Mm-hmm. That's why they were looked down on so badly. That's interesting. And I I also think that this was common because it was very obvious to the surrounding nations that Israel was favored. And again, the their worship of any of the pagan gods was based on who's the most powerful. And the God of Israel was proving that visibly in a number of ways. So even the ones that claimed to want to worship the true God, it wasn't out of a heart of true worship. It was because he's, he's got goodies. I mean, if we can get him on our side, we'll rule. So I think that that was some of the ulterior motives of these folks that were offering to help build the temple. But these folks, yes, Wendell. We, or at least I have, almost commonly come to this as a monotheistic issue. They weren't renouncing their other gods. Correct. Adding, exactly. Adding another god to their pantheon. Yes. You know, the most powerful. Mm-hmm. To make sure that, the, that all the bases were covered. They had all their cards, so, yeah. You know, so this was not a, oh, we're going to accept God. Not at all. God. Not at all. Like, hey, this is another god, let's, let's add him to our... Are mixed. Yes. And in a, sh- in a shocking show of wisdom, these folks were learning from their history. They'd just come back from 70 years of captivity. They recognized how they got there was by doing and making alliances just like this. And so they, they turned them down. And they said those who had recently rededicated themselves to the Lord realized that the line of demarcation between his people and the world is ever to be kept unmistakably distinct. They refused to enter into alliance with those who, though familiar with the requirements of God's law, would not yield to its claims. What law do we think we're talking about here? And what are its claims? What are the claims of God's law that we have to yield to? Behold, you become changed. You need to behold this God. And yes. he does it, not everything under the sun, God. And become like that. What about the law of love being the law of life? Don't we have to yield to its claims or be separated from life? Did you have a comment? No. The same principles set forth in Deuteronomy for the instruction of Israel are to be followed by God's people to the end of time. Again, it sounds like we should be learning from history. This is also from Prophets and Kings talking about the duplicitous, deceitful behavior of the Samaritans who were trying to help. It is not the open and avowed enemies of the cause of God that are most to be feared. Those who, like the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, come with smooth words and fair speeches, apparently seeking for friendly alliance with God's children, have greater power to deceive against every soul, 
against such, every soul should be on the alert, lest some carefully concealed and masterly snare take him unaware. And especially today, while Earth's history is closing, the Lord requires of his children a vigilance that knows no relaxation. But though the conflict is a ceaseless one, none are left to struggle alone. Angels help and protect those who walk humbly before God. Never will our Lord betray one who trusts in him. As his children draw near to him for protection from evil, in pity and love he lifts up for them a standard against the enemy. Touch them not, he says, for they are mine. I have graven them upon the palms of my hands. Yes. They may have learned not to associate with the, the idolaters, which was wonderful, but they went all the eventually they went the other way and wouldn't associate whatsoever. So we have to be careful not yes. to isolate ourselves totally because that wasn't the point. Absolutely. And yet we're not supposed to become like the those idolaters and so forth. So there's a balance and they were so afraid yep. that they would go back get drawn back in mm -hmm. that they com nearly completely shut themselves off. So when I think of, I remember that point too. That's such a good point. And isn't that the rub? Isn't the in the world and not of the world our challenge? Yep. I mean, they had a specific purpose. Again, they were the the holders of the oracles of God, they were to represent who God was to every person on the planet at that time of the world. That was their mission. So yeah, if they're going to close themselves off so much because they were, they didn't trust themselves to not get drugged back into it, they could not fulfill their purpose. And neither can we. Somebody else had a comment? They became bigoted. Yes. An isolationist. Yes, Eve. And the irony is that in doing so, they turned their own worship of the true God into idolatry. Yes. Oh, we're going to talk about that a little bit. As we progress through the temple rebuilding project. So they had a gung-ho start on the temple rebuilding project, but then much opposition arose. And over several years, the work started and stopped a number of times. Ultimately got sent prophets, then Haggai and Zechariah, to kind of mm, prod them and encourage them to complete the task. Any ideas why they had so much trouble maintaining enthusiasm for this temple rebuilding project? It was important. It was the central focus of their worship was the temple. Why did they have so much trouble? Very costly and a lot of work. They started but, putting attention to their own houses they're like, i got to have some place. Yes. So they started turning from that to doing their own thing. I have life. I mean, think about it. They came back to a place that, well, from what I understand, had been deserted the whole time they had been gone. It had been destroyed and then deserted while they weren't there. So they had homes to rebuild. They had gardens. They had neighborhoods. They had schools. They had hospitals. They had everything else to rebuild as well, uh, along with the temple. But it seems like all of their attempts at success in everyday life came to nothing as long as they were ignoring and not prioritizing God's will and obedience to his commands. Also, again, we had the Samaritans offering to help, and when they refused, they stirred up a bunch of opposition and interference to hinder instead of help. 
They had discouragement. They were constantly comparing this new temple, which was smaller and less grand. And they had huge misunderstandings of the temple's true significance. So I want to talk more about a bit more about each of these, see if we can glean some practical application, learn some lessons from what the Israelites experienced, and hopefully avoid some history repeating itself. So, did, did y'all know that they were opposed and hindered, that there were people actively trying to keep them from rebuilding the temple? It says, untiring in their opposition, the Samaritans weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, by false report, they aroused suspicion in minds easily led to suspect. But for many years, the powers of evil were held in check and the people in Judea had liberty to continue their work. You're starting to get an idea that this whole thing was about much more than just a construction project or building some brick and mortar. This is why it continues. While Satan was striving to influence the highest powers in the Medo-Persian kingdom to show disfavor to God's people, angels worked in behalf of the exiles. The controversy was one in which all heaven was interested This was like the main thing going on in the universe at the time. We are given a glimpse of this mighty struggle between the forces of good and evil through the prophet of Daniel. For three weeks, Gabriel wrestled with the powers of darkness, seeking to counteract the influences at work on the mind of Cyrus. And before the contest closed, Christ himself came to Gabriel's aid. All that heaven could do on behalf of the people of God was done. What an amazing insight into the links the God of the universe goes on each of our behalf. The Samaritans who were trying to stop it and sent uh, reports of bad reports to the government, it turned out to end up in the Israelites' favor. Correct. <laughs> it tur- it, he went and searched through uh, the scrolls or whatever they had, mm-hmm. found the you know, yes. where they had originally been sent, and they, in fact, sent more stuff and said, leave them alone. You know, in fact, <laughs> I'm sending more stuff to help them get it. Yeah. And what did so Joseph really backfired on them. What did Joseph say? What he intended for evil, God meant for good. The fact that they had to search, and it wasn't, it wasn't in the official records. They no, they had to dig. It was a different province of the yeah. document. You know, so it was, it was an old thing. It took forever. Yeah. Interestingly, not quite exactly on this, but when you think of the uh, bad parts of the Israelites being taken over to Babylon, Persia, and all this kind of thing, late, years later, you see the um, wise men mm-hmm. knowing more about yeah, true, uh, and what was expected, the king of the Jews, yeah, than the because they had did. been studying. And this, I think, can be directly attributed to Daniel mm-hmm. and Esther, Mordecai. I agree. All these people uh, becoming in favor and yes. giving them the information that later on would end up giving um, Jesus and his family stuff to live on in Correct. Egypt when Correct. they were hiding. Isn't uh, that interesting? Not trying not to be killed. So you wonder, where did these wise men of the East come from? Well, they were influenced. Yes. By what happened to the Jews when they were taken away into these places and they were, you know, able in a position to actually uh, make it 
known and that actually brought fruition later on when Jesus was born. And isn't he constantly doing that? Isn't he constantly weaving that tapestry hundreds and thousands of years in advance? It's amazing. I think there could be some commentary on the idea that uh, people that are locally involved need to be faithful to the extent that they can be. Yes, in their sphere of influence. Because when the powers that be, whether they be Cyrus or... Mm -hmm you know, uh, the royalty of surrounding area, when they see that these people are uh, dedicated to their project, then that makes them more willing mm -hmm. to help. And what we have to keep in mind, too, is that um, when you're talking about a project like building a temple, that's not something that you go to Home Depot for. You, uh, you go, if you do, you go a lot of times. That's right. You go, <laughs> you go everywhere that the yes. quarries are. You go to the places where the big trees are. Yeah. And it's, it's a very widespread and, and thorough effort. So it should have been like the best time. They had all of the agencies of heaven working on their behalf on governments and powers and enemies. But it says the opposition of their enemies was strong and determined and gradually the builders lost heart. Many of them discouraged and disheartened returned to their homes to take up the ordinary pursuits of life. For over a year, the temple rebuild was neglected and well nigh forsaken. But work as they might at their homes, they did not prosper. The very elements of nature seemed to conspire against them. Has anyone ever felt like that? <laughs> Where you thought that the entire universe had come together to thwart whatever you were trying to do. And so they couldn't grow anything. They couldn't build anything. Nothing was successful. And because they had used these bountiful gifts and favor so selfishly, those blessings were removed. You were talking about this is one of the, one of the communications, one of the disciplines. And so if you study Haggai, first chapter, God reveals this to them, why it's happening. But what does it mean? Does it mean if you don't do exactly what God wants or what he says, that he's going to ruin your plans and prevent you from prospering? Or is it an object lesson? Does it mean something else? What does the temple really symbolize? What is it pointing to? It's you and me. We are the dwelling place for, the, for God here on earth, for the Holy Spirit. What happens when we spend our energies trying to gain riches or power for ourselves or just party, have a good time, while neglecting the care of our spirit temple? Can we grow healthier? Can we prosper? Can we experience God's blessings in our lives if we neglect the spirit temple? Why? Is it because God refuses to bless us? Or is it because by abusing the spirit temple, we close off the channel to receive blessing? What about the discouragement caused by comparisons with the previous temple? And were there still some deep misunderstandings about what the temple really symbolized? I thought it was interesting that Ezra, he came later. He came in the second mm -hmm. wave. But wait a minute. The good guys were supposed to are left. Right. You know? Yeah. And Ezra, this devout study of the scriptures and all that sort of stuff, was still in Babylon. It's like they kept some on the bench. Yeah. They needed some relief pictures. And 
Esther and all that. Mm-hmm. You know, they were. They never came back. Yeah. Yeah. Or as far as we know, Daniel. Right. Daniel did. I mean, in uh, Nehemiah 10, Daniel and Azariah are, you know, the Shadrach, Meshach, mm-hmm. and Abednego, their real names. So Azariah is listed, Daniel is listed as someone who came that back. A, that was a common name. Well, it could have been, or he could have been, if it was him, and they were there seven years, he must have been very young. He was in the Yeah, and, yeah. You know, also in the priesthood and so on, but in any event, he must have been very, very young uh, to have started there and gone through 70 years and come back. Must have been like an 80-something-year-old guy, if it was a mm-hmm. But that's right, it's listed to So a lot of them were celebrating... A lot of them were more joyful as they planned and got, got ready to rebuild the temple. But it said, Many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. Which does tell you that some of them were very old. Correct. <laughs> yes, exactly. And they remember seeing it before they were yep. so Some of them are... And I mean, some of that sadness, I think, probably was appropriate. If you if you read about the details of that first temple, it was grand, it was opulent, it had the the glory of God's unrevealed glory present in it, which is what made it special. Yes, and they seemed to have no. lost sight of that. Exactly, focusing on the external, the materials that it was made out of, what it looked, yes. like, what was in it. Yeah, they had seen the glory of Solomon's temple, and they lamented because of the inferiority of the building now to be erected. The murmuring and complaining and the unfavorable comparisons had a depressing influence on the minds of many. And doesn't it always? And it weakened the hands of the builders. Here is the real problem. The magnificence of the first temple and the imposing rites of its religious services had become a source of pride to Israel before their captivity. Why was it a source of pride? And is that necessarily good or bad? Were they proud for the right reasons? Well, you tend to idolize, begin to, you know, idolize the things you have. Yes. You know, the things that make you seem... Wealthier, well-respected, the nice car, the big house, the beautiful sanctuary you worship in. Yes. If you suddenly are made to live in like a hovel and worship in some mm-hmm. just a plain building, uh, it's less it's less easy to worship that. Or to For sure. That. For sure. Showcase. It was their showpiece. It was. Well, Hezekiah showed yeah. the emissaries from Babylon with exactly catalyst that. Uh, to being conquered. Stuff over here, we need to go take. But I mean, if you had this gorgeous temple that you had built to God instructions and you had hewn every log like out in the forest and cut every rock before you brought it in and you knew that it was God's dwelling place with you and you knew that you were a special people called for a special purpose, again, the pride itself, depending on the origins of it, wasn't necessarily the bad thing. This is the bad thing. Their worship had oft times been lacking in those qualities which God regards as most essential. And what are those? The glory of the first temple, the splendor of its service, could not recommend them to God. 
for that which is alone of value in his sight, they did not offer. They did not bring him the sacrifice of a humble and contrite spirit. Really listen to this. It is when the vital principles of the kingdom of God are lost sight of that ceremonies become multitudinous and extravagant. It is when the character building is neglected, when the adornment of the soul is lacking. Is that typically what we're concerned with adorning when we go to church? When the adornment of the soul is lacking, when the simplicity of godliness is despised, that pride and love of display demand magnificent church edifices, splendid adornings, and imposing ceremonies. But in all this, God is not honored. He values his church not for its external advantages, but for the sincere piety which distinguishes it from the world. He estimates it according to the growth of its members in the knowledge of Christ, according to their progress in spiritual experience, maturity. He looks for the principles of love and goodness. Not all the beauty of art can bear comparison with the beauty of temper and character to be revealed in those who are Christ's representatives. Have you ever wondered why there aren't any leftovers anywhere that we found that I'm aware of, of the, the temple stuff? Mm-hmm. And, and even the snake that, they, that uh, Moses was told to create. To put on a pole. When all those snakes were um, you know, biting the mm-hmm. Look to the snake and live and so on. Right. Eventually... That came to became an idol. They named it Nahum. They started worshiping it. Eventually, it had to be destroyed. Yes. The people were using the very thing that had been meant to point them to Christ and the you know salvation. They used it as an idol, and and we have that tendency. Of course. If we found anything that was in the original temple. We would. I mean, look at the shroud of Turin. Exactly. We don't even know whether yeah. that's authentic or not, but people are just like they would flock to it. And so I think God makes sure that some of this stuff is gone. Yeah. Too easy to just look to it instead of to God. Well, and they repeatedly did this with their entire, I mean, the entire sanctuary system was nothing but symbols. And they repeatedly lost sight of what the reality the symbol was pointing to. And the the symbol itself became became the focus. One last bit of that quote. A congregation may be the poorest in the land. It may be without the attractions of any outward show, but if the members possess the principles of the character of Christ, angels will unite with them in their worship. Their praise and thanksgiving from grateful hearts will ascend to God as a sweet oblation. Again, this wasn't about building an edifice. I got to figure out how to how to wrap up. Any more any more comments? Yes. Go ahead, Rachel. So I think we can tie this together. You notice you just read about Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Russell talked about blessings given, blessings removed, discipline, abandonment. And um, Linda talking about the the poverty of the soul. I've thought a lot about this lately because I have many 
precious gifts in my life mm-hmm. that have blessed me, and this, as did the Israelites, and this is not for us to be proud of, right. but to be grateful for. Absolutely. And I think when, when we have those thoughts, we're really pleased with something that came out well, the condition of the heart should be, thank you, Jesus. Exactly. Not, look what I did. Exactly. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking, because I read this article about the heart this summer, and you know, whenever we have an emotion, whether it's fear, uh, disappointment, um, depression, whatever that emotion is, we can look at that emotion and say, what can I replace that with? with. And I, I've come up with two things, and maybe people can add that, but I think one is gratitude, mm-hmm. thankfulness to God. Um, actually, I've come up with three things. A second one is finding someone else to help. Yes. And a third one is faith. Because we don't know the future. We don't know how things are going to come out. So I think whatever whatever negative emotion wells up in us, mm-hmm. that is, um, my brother-in-law says, Satan always talks to us in first person. Yes. I feel, I think, I have. And that can be replaced with either gratitude, helping someone else, or faith. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that very much. And I mean... We don't know the details, but we kind of do know how things are going to turn out, which I think is why we're told to hold on loosely. If things turn out the way we've been told and the way we believe, all the these things, these temporal things, these blessings are likely going to be gone. And it's why we're told to hide his word in our heart. It's why we're told there's only going to be a couple of things that you're able to keep with you. And it's your character. It's what's in your heart and mind. It's not it's not the things in your in your bag, you know. And just just one, you have to read some of the notes because, again, it goes through in detail why this was so much more than about a building and why Satan was so dead set against that temple being rebuilt because he knew what it represented and he knew what what the Israelites' purpose was and he knew that if he could destroy them, he could shut down the avenue through which the Messiah would come. And it says here, Because Israel had been chosen to preserve the knowledge of God in the earth, they had ever been special objects of Satan's enmity. He was determined to cause their destruction. You understand that we have been chosen to preserve the knowledge of God in the earth. We, you and me, we are also the objects of his efforts of destruction. In another book, Desire of Ages, Mrs. White says, What does the temple at Jerusalem symbolize? In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah and entering upon his work. The temple, that temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and for the entire world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph down to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the Creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. God designed that temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. That's why he wanted to thwart those efforts. Let's bow our heads. Father, we're so grateful. Oh, we're so grateful that... uh, 
all of the agencies of heaven are called in our behalf. And we pray that you would continue to do that for each of us. We pray that you would do that for this ministry. Father, we want to go home and we want this message about you to be spread so that people can know you and that you can come soon. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.